Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. What you just heard there, folks, amongst the cheering and roaring in that little intro there, was the instrumental introduction for Wings as they came to the stage in Groningen, the Netherlands, on the 20th of August, 1972. Oh, and my God, does it feel good to be back home talking about some good old-fashioned Wings content. Yes, hello, hello, hello. Welcome all. Pull up a chair and put up your feet. Thank you for joining me for another bonus episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul or of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and after doing some of those proper episodes that I was always meant to be focusing on, aka some album review episodes, I'm now going to revert back to my normal mode of podcasting and have a little bit too much fun in bunking off Pipes of Peace some more in order to indulge my pro-wings leanings, you know, more so than I already do on this show. Of course, I would like to take a quick moment before we begin to thank you, the listener, you, the emailer, you, the Twitter follower, you, the Patreon supporter. Of course, this show has had a rocky couple of months. Check out my last update episode if you don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, the gears are always turning here at Paul or Nothing, folks, and we have some great content for you just over the horizon, and I cannot express my unending gratitude for your continual sponsorship and listenership. Rather like my last gig review, my passion for discussing this particular show comes out of my own fandom for this particular performance and my own utter fondness for this period in Wings history. This is a show that has been on my radar for quite a while and I've been wanting to talk about it ever since. This is an exciting period of Paul's career to discuss and, you know, since we've been discussing the modern, titanic, polished to perfect finish Paul McCartney gig with all of its bells and whistles, and then compare it to what we're going to be discussing here today, then you can really start to appreciate the work required to get from point A to B for our modern McCartney. Why Wings Over Groningen, though, specifically, I can hear you ask. Well, you know what? That actually is a good question, really, as I really did have the pick of the litter whilst coming through the Wings Over Europe tour. But Wings Over Groningen was the first Wings bootleg that I ever actually personally sat down with and listened to in its entirety. So there's also an obviously nostalgic element there for me. 
there's also the set list, which contains two songs from a particular album that I just cannot resist discussing. And when you consider that most of the, the recordings for this tour only includes one of those songs from that particular album, then you can see why I am so excited to discuss those rare beasts. And finally, you just gotta take the sound quality into account because as far as what I have access to and therefore you, the audience, have access to, the Wings Live Over Groningen gig, in my opinion, is the best overall sounding gig from this tour. Now, whilst this was, and still primarily is, going to be part of our gig review side series, one of our many side series, things have spiralled a little bit out of control once again, and in true Paul or Nothing fashion, what was meant to be a short episode has engorged itself to a rather swollen, throbbing length. In the writing of this episode, I did kind of wonder whether it would be more appropriate to do a proper deep dive on the whole Wings Over Europe tour, which is a topic that we have covered before here on this show, but not in the kind of detail that I would personally be satisfied with, as I was talking about other things on the episode as well. And I wanted to do, you know, a comparison of all the shows and all the set lists. But then I kind of realised that the backstory for one show over the Wings Over Europe tour would pretty much cover the whole tour. Like, all of the backstory is going to be the same backstory no matter which gig I pick. So the step up, you know, in workload needed to take this from a purely Groningen 1972 gig review episode to a full-fledged Wings Over Europe episode was really so minuscule that it only made sense for me to bring you the most comprehensive picture possible. So now we are here with a gig review episode slash bonus episode on Wings Over Europe combo. There you are folks, you're going to get two for one. Though before we re-familiarise ourselves with all of the facts, I am going to have to do a bit of housekeeping. I'm very sorry. Housekeeping! First of all, I would like to say thank you. A lot of you have actually gone out there now and given this show a five-star review on iTunes and other platforms. Thank you so much for that. It obviously does help boost us in the rankings and in the metrics. And I asked you all to go out and do it, and you did. Obviously, if more of you could go out and give this show a five-star review on iTunes, that would be incalculably helpful for this show. Best way to get in contact with us is on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. It, you know, the most direct, quickest way to be up to date with the show. We're doing loads of alphabetical Paul McCartney polls now. We're going through all of his songs and ranking them. I've been posting loads of music lately, loads of pictures. I'm really trying to pick up the Twitter and make it a lot more active. And that's what we've been doing. If you want a more detailed or intimate contact with the show then drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com unfortunately no emails again to read out this week come on come on folks step up your game a little bit you've been doing fantastic and smashing it with the five star itunes review so some of you are going to have to suck it up and send me an email as well anything your paul mccartney story how did you get into him have you met him do you play his music have any events in your life drastically been shaped by paul mccartney or meeting someone who also likes paul mccartney anything Macca-centric, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Check out the sister blog, which is going to have a new article up very, very soon, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. That's paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Loads of stuff that can't be fit into full episodes or just random little digressions that I just have to get out of my system all go straight onto the blog. And if you can't get enough Paul or Nothing content, that is the best way for you to sate your appetite. And lastly, you know what's coming, folks. That is the Patreon. We already have 
three or four patron supporters already on this show, and I'm in obvious debt to those wonderful people. Patreon, if you don't know, is a platform where you can help support independent content creators such as myself to keep this show running. The show is never going to have any ads. I never want to put advertising on it. But obviously, this show takes up a huge amount of my time and it does cost money to keep it online for you to listen to for free. So if you want to help support the show and want to help me keep this show running as smoothly as possible, then check out our Patreon link down below where you can become a patron and essentially donate a cup of coffee every month or something like that. Every little helps. And obviously, the the future goal in a shockingly weird alternative universe would be, you know, for, for me to get to, to the point where I could support myself enough with the Patreon so that I could do this podcast full time. And I believe that is all of the housekeeping, folks. Thank you for sitting through those awful plugs. Now, let's get into the Wings Over Europe tour, as well as the specific 1972 Groningen show in the Netherlands. I think it's time we did a bit of backstory now. So where do we find ourselves with Paul McCartney and Wings in 1972? Well, I think the first clue is in the name that this band are going to be touring under. Whilst the tour name might be Wings Over Europe, the band are very much in the middle of the era where it's definitely going to be Paul McCartney and Wings. Wildlife had come out just about six months before to less than stellar reviews and sales, which spooked either Paul or the record company into pushing his very bankable name at the expense of the quote-unquote band dynamic. This is going to be a tour that banks on Paul McCartney's name and Paul Power, possibly more so than any other tour in Wings history. Though you could argue that the Wings brand name may not be as well known outside of the UK and parts of the US, so it would make sense to call them Paul McCartney and Wings. Plus the very next album, Red Rose Speedway, that will be released next year, would also be accredited to Paul McCartney and Wings, only further highlighting those classic McCartney post-Beatle insecurities. Band on the Run hasn't happened yet, and you can feel this layer of desperation on the part of Macca to achieve some sort of true recognition as you know, validation for himself and this band project that he's working with. Speaking of insecurities, the reason we are doing a Wings live in Groningen, aka Wings over the Netherlands, aka Wings over the Europe discussion at all, is because Wings were so well and truly unpopular in the UK. And whilst, you know, the phrase unpopular might be a little bit too harsh, they were definitely not welcomed with the open arms that McCartney had, you know, envisioned. And in response to this general lack of audience warmth and acceptance at home, Macca decided either to reward Europe or punish England slash run away by taking the entire tour away from the motherland. Well, not Denny Sywell or Linda's motherland, as they were Americans and Henry was Irish, so it's only two-fifths of the band's motherland, but you know what I mean. England was clearly not as pro-wings as I am now in this period, and the band still wanted to tour, so it did make sense that they were going to make headway in all of these other markets around Europe to try and build up a more bankable customer base. One question you might ask, though, is why isn't this tour also going to the US or to Japan? And the simple answer is that Wings had little to no notoriety outside of Europe at all. The whole Wings Over the World slash Wings Over America tour was all part of a build-up that was meticulously put into place 
up to 1975-1976, and if this version of Wings with this setup and this lineup went all the way over to the old US of A at this time, I just think they would have been eaten alive. Though, in hindsight, probably going to Japan at this point may have been the best thing the band could have done, as they would only go on to keep further cocking that up later. And you also can't deny the fact that most of these tour destinations are also shaped around the fact that Paul is still dealing with a multitude of drug charges and drug offences, something that would plague Wings right till their last lineup. So, leaving old Blighty behind and with the continental lands in their sights, Paul, Linda, the kids, the dog, the crew and the band packed everything onto a big, fantabulously painted double-decker bus and set out on their very own magical mystery tour. But since it was a double-decker bus this time with the entire top deck removed, with a focus on living space and number of seats, I guess I can count this as not being a total rip-off of the magical mystery tour bus, I suppose. When speaking about this Technicolor transport, Paul said, We knew we were going to tour the bus in Europe, and that the weather was going to be nice, and that the idea of being stuck in a bus all the time going from city to city, hotel to hotel, wasn't all too appealing. So we decided to travel in an open-top bus and get some sunshine as we travel from place to place. We painted the outside to be all psychedelic, like a magic bus. If you look at it very straight, very conventionally, it's quite a mad thing to do. You know, to put a playpen on the top deck of a bus and, and put all of your children on there whilst we were driving around Europe. It's not what you'd expect from a normal band, but we weren't a normal band. Interestingly enough, I stumbled across a couple of rather interesting facts about this particular bus whilst researching this tour. The first and most significant of these facts being that this tour bus was the debut of what would go on to be the official Wings logo. You know the one I mean, the, the black and white W with the feathers coming off it, that iconic Wings logo. And a description of how this came to be comes from a transcript from the artist's wife that found its way onto the ever-fantastic Steve Hoffman forums. It reads, Neil designed the first Wings logo, which was made of wood and attached to the back of the Wings Over Europe 1972 tour bus, which was a painted double-decker London bus. Friends of ours, Geoffrey Cleghorn and Charlie Smith, got the job through Tom Salter, who owned the gear shops in Carnaby Street. Neil was brought in on the project to help design and paint the bus as he was an artist and graphic designer and had worked on other projects with Geoffrey, doing murals and interiors for boutiques, pubs and restaurants. They had the design all drawn up and were leaving to start work when they realised that the logo hadn't been done. So, Neil borrowed a Mickey Mouse ruler and pencil from Charlie's daughter and designed it on the back of an envelope. Charlie built the logo out of wood, which was then bolted on the back of the bus. We worked on the bus in a London transport garage in Staines, Middlesex, and I remember Paul and Linda actually came to look at the bus whilst we were working on it, though not the other band members. Geoffrey, Charlie and Tom Salter escorted the bus with a proper London bus driver to the south of France for the beginning of the tour. I believe the London design company used Neil's Wings logo for all future Wings merchandising products. And whilst Paul's penny-pinching during this period is semi-notorious, I really hope that that designer actually got at least a pretty penny for designing that Wings logo because that would go on to become the iconic image of Wings. Though you also hear these stories about, you know, the person who designed the famous tick for Nike only got $50 or something like that. that that's probably a misnomer. But you know what I mean. Also, the lack of the Denny's or Henry coming to have a look at this bus 
as well as the fact that it was obvious from the get-go that McCartney's kids and dog were also going to be passengers. I guess it's safe to say that this tour bus was clearly a Macca-based initiative, and I can only imagine what it must have been like for the Denny's and Henry to live on this cramped bus with the entire Macca clan, though I'm sure substances would help alleviate some of the more stressful elements of such living conditions. The other fact, though, that I just happened to come across about this bus, this hybrid vehicle made from a Bristol KSW5G chassis with the body of an Eastern Coachworks bus uh, with the registration WN0481, oddly enough, had actually gone missing. And with rumoured sightings all over Europe, Paul McCartney's actual official Twitter page actually put out a request for any information regarding this bus. Turns out, after the tour, the bus was not kept as a relic as it should have been, but was instead acquired by the UK-British transport company Trinstrol, or Trinsatrol, who would go on to paint it in the most garish of sickly, beigey greens you can imagine. Trinsatrol would use this bus for commercial journeys until it was put out of service in 1980. Then, flash forward nine years to the South End portion of the Great British Film Rally, London to Cannes, it is now sporting a bright red and white trim paint coat with banner advertisements for this British film rally or whatever it is. Then hop forward another three years and the same bus appears in a Spanish publication where now it's been sold at the famous Sotheby's auction house and has been now repainted with the original Wings Over Europe paint job. Whilst the publication was Spanish, the tax on the vehicle stated that it was at least in the UK, until 1993. Then another massive gap of radio silence until 2007, where pictures of a very sorry looking tour bus, all dusty, rusty and missing its hood, was found at the bottom of a ravine on the island of Tenerife, of all fucking places. It was even viewable on Google Maps Street View, which is depressing as it is fascinating. Then, flash forward another 10 years, and we get more sightings in October 2017, including images of a dilapidated tour bus being loaded onto a freighter in Algiers, a port in southern Spain. Turns out the bus had been spotted and rescued by an English charity called Arms Around the World, who now finally have had this bus properly restored to its former glory and now use it for charitable events. So yeah, everything you ever wanted to know about the Wings Over Europe tour bus, there it is. That's the kind of shit that you folks on the Patreon are paying for, and I am glad to deliver. And as far as I'm aware, that is the only major digression on today's show. The actual tour itself lasted from the 9th of July till the 24th of August 1972, and took them across nine continental European countries, 12 borders, and a total of 26 performances. Each venue they played was usually one, if not the largest place physically available for them to play, which was an incredible step up from the previous university tour. In a year, they've somehow gone from gigging in the back of a van at a few random universities and college venues in the UK, and now they're playing giant stadiums, halls and theatres. I mean, obviously, this may have something to do with the fact that this is the first time Paul had toured outside of the country since 1966, when he was with a little band called The Beatles. But also, it's nice to see that Paul isn't holding the band back with a silly university gig mentality and is allowing them to play the shows that they really should have been playing right from the outset. 
One of these venues as well was the Concert Gabo, which Paul would later name-check in the lyrics for Venus and Mars Rock Show. Predictably, the entire tour was a sellout, and I'm not sure if people were expecting to hear Beatle content during this time. Um, like I say, this is the first time Paul had been out of the country since 66, but that's not what they were going to get. I don't know how people perceived it at this time. If any of you know anyone who was at this tour, or if any of you out there were aware of it at the time, please email me at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to know what the hype and the excitement around this tour was like. Our lineup this time around was the same as the last tour and would be the same as the next. This is the Red Rose Speedway lineup of the band. And God, I'm going to be saying the words Red Rose Speedway a lot in this episode. And this is probably their most iconic tour. For those of you who might need a quick reminder, we have Paul McCartney on lead vocals, bass and piano. We have Linda McCartney on the keyboards and backing vocals. We've got Denny Lane on guitar, piano, backing, and even occasional lead vocals and bass, basically wherever Paul needs him to be. Then we've got Denny Sywell on drums and percussion. And finally, we have Henry McCulloch on lead guitar. Admittedly, they were nowhere near as polished as the Wings Over America lineup of the band, but they were never really meant to be, as Paul was still more or less still working out that original mindset of Wings being this group of cool people to hang out with rather than a group of people who are the best musicians to make this band. Despite this, though, they were still leagues beyond what audiences during the UK Wings University tour were subjected to, and the step up in quality between these two tours is significant, to say the least. The whole thing just had this confident energy that the band simply did not have the first time round, and this only goes to make the music more enjoyable and more suitable for these bigger venues. The combination of the band's ever-increasing familiarity playing these songs over this tour as well as the relief from the everyday pressures that come with the UK and US musical press, meant that the band could really just enjoy being Wings, being a proper band for the first time, you know? Rather than confused students who didn't know what they were in for, they were met with roaring crowds, cheering fans, and genuine excitement from their audiences. And it must have felt like the polar opposite of their experience back in England. The on-stage dopamine rushes that they all must have felt during this time must have cemented the idea in their minds that Wings were now a proper band. And speaking of the old Mary Jane, that brings me on to the only minor hiccup of this tour, publicity-wise. And as you probably have guessed, it's going to be another irksome encounter with the law over Paul's choice of herbs. And according to the New York Times, it was to be half a pound of marijuana that would get Paul in trouble this time. The story goes that Macca and the package that was apparently addressed to a member of the band were intercepted by the authorities in Gothenburg, Sweden. It was just after they had performed their show at the Scandinavium on August 10th. And whilst the fine of $1,200 US may not have scuppered any of Paul's plans at the time, it did go on to be part of the long list of weed-based events that would result in Wings not being able to even play Japan for the Wings Over the World Tour. So that, in turn, meant that a specific Japanese tour had to be planned for 1979 so that they could actually build a fan base there, which would lead up to the breakup of the band due to another marijuana incident. So, no major implications at all there really no history repeating itself it's like poetry it's it rhymes you know 
Paul would also be later quick to quip that the Gothenburg weed bust was actually an incident that would be good publicity for the tour. And as I'm going to get into with the songs, this is a period where Wings are going to be shockingly cool. Like After doing this episode and just listening to these bootlegs and stuff, you can definitely sense that the global Eurosoup community were definitely still massive fans of McCartney and possibly even fans of Wings. Or at the very least were much more ready to accept Wings and give Wings a go and give Wings a chance. It's a very interesting period, I must say. But, as I mentioned earlier, it was like being a kid in, in, in a candy shop, just researching this tour. I feel so blessed that not only a huge chunk of these shows were actually recorded, either officially or unofficially, but also that they have mostly all made their way onto YouTube in one form or another, one song here or there, or maybe the whole thing. Wings Over Europe produced a hefty number of bootlegs for fans to collect, and for the longest time, these little bootlegs were the evidence on vinyl to prove the dirty little secret that Wings were actually a better band than everyone thought, at least live. These bootlegs are also where the majority of the Macca remasters and re-releases get their material from, like, if you've heard The Mess or 1882, it is from This Wings Over America tour. In fact, when the Paul McCartney Archive Collection released their Wings 1971-1973 Super Bumper Collection, it included a bonus compilation album titled, suitably enough, Wings Over Europe, which, interestingly, also included Big Barn Bed from the 1973 UK tour. Very interesting. And this album actually uses four songs from this Groningen performance. The four that they chose from this Groningen performance were Give On and Back to the Irish, Seaside Woman, Maybe I'm Amazed, and Long Tall Sally. And it's very fortunate that the last two on that list exist because they are not present on the original live in Groningen recording. The reason that so many of these shows are actually recorded in the first place is because the band wanted a healthy stockpile of live material to choose from as they were actually planning to include some live songs on the next album, their second album, aka the proposed double disc of Red Rose Speedway. And it's generally quite cool to see that, at least at this point, there was really a genuine intention not only to go through with the double disc of Red Rose Speedway, but also to actually include live songs. But perhaps due to the poor quality of many of these recordings, it is easy to see why they would ultimately be some of the first tracks to receive the chop when the time came to reduce Red Rose to a single album. There have been better edits and remasters of these songs since, but I'm sure that Macca really wasn't at all too happy with the final recordings when he had them. I'm not too sure how professionally this entire tour was recorded. Maybe some shows had a bit more money spent on the equipment. Maybe some shows less. Maybe it varied on city to city. But I hate to say it, most of these bootlegs do sound like they are just the fan recordings. You know, it's some guy out there with a mic in the audience. You know, these aren't crisp recordings. But the reason I've chosen Groningen, as I alluded to earlier, is that it is the most cohesive quality product. Though I am sure that there is a performance at The Hague that the McCartney Archive Collection has access to. 
that I cannot find in full on YouTube at all. Maybe there's a bootleg out there, but the McCartney Archive Collection releases uses twice as many songs from The Hague performance as it does from this Groningen one, so I guess we never had a Wings live album in this period, and it is genuinely confusing for me sitting here in 2019 as to why that never happened. Why did the live show aspect of Wings' career, this element of them that was objectively better, continue to be buried rather than being allowed to flourish? I mean, we even have the fabled Bruce McMount performance that was compiled from four performances in the Netherlands, including Groningen and Germany, so... Was all of this just so bad at the time that McCartney simply refused to release it until it was just some bonus feature 30, 40 years later? Well, hopefully by the end of this episode, you should agree with me that the answer is no. And yes, you can argue that Wings are more popular today than they've ever been, especially at this point in their career, but it would have been such a, a wonderful experience to have a, a Wing Lives album in this period. Perhaps it was too much of a risk, a risk that they just didn't want to take. But all you would have had to have done back in that day would have been to take all of these recordings, maybe find the ones that were a little more polished, maybe cut it down to 14 or 15 songs, and you would have been good to go. You've got it recorded anyway. Why not put out the product? It certainly wouldn't have damaged their reputation at all. And you know what? In fact, it may have looked a little something like this. Yes, folks, not only are you going to get a little gig review here and a bit of a background to this whole tour, but I'm also going to throw in a little Sam Builds a Hypothetical Album episode as well. This would have been my very own Wings Over Europe live album that would have been released sometime in mid-1973. I haven't checked the McCartney Archive version. I haven't checked what they've done. I do know that Big Barn Bed is on that, but I would not include that on my Wings Over Europe album. But this is how I'd play it. Side one would start with Eat at Home, then Smile Away, Bit Bop, then Mumbo, 1882, Soily, then My Love. Then we'd start side two with Gillivard and Back to the Irish. Then we'd have The Mess, Seaside Woman, I Would Only Smile, Wildlife. Then we'd have Best Friend and finish off with Maybe I'm Amazed. And yeah, I don't think that's a bad stab at what the album should have looked like. I've got rid of the covers, so this is as close to a pure Wings experience as you can get without ejecting the solo McCartney numbers, the wonderfully juicy solo McCartney numbers. But if Paul wants to distance himself from the Beatles, he isn't going to do it with other people's songs, is he? And if I'm honest, and we're going to come to this on the gig review portion of the show, but the fact of the matter is, is that bar from Long Tall Sally at the end of this show which is in itself just another Beatles hangover, the covers chosen for this gig are wildly inappropriate and do not work. But more on them later, obviously, and do not worry, folks. <laughs> Spoilers, I'm not going to say anything negative about Long Tall Sally. I'm not sure anyone could. And hey, you know, less running time means greater audio fidelity and... I would want this new debut of Wings live performance side to have the highest quality possible. The annoying thing is, though, is that if you did go back in time and add a cool Wings Over Europe type album, then you actually risk prematurely making the band rather cool, 
which then may not result into band members quitting the band, which may not have given birth to the magnus opus that is Band on the Run. I myself have been able to find on YouTube at least the entire recordings of Wings' performances in Munich, Arles, Lund, The Hague, Amsterdam and even bits of the Berlin show. For this, I'm just I'm just so grateful as it affords such a well-rounded and all-encompassing look at this tour. Like there is so much for us to compare and contrast here. I think it's a fair assumption to make that Paul wanted any potential live recordings that would feature on the next album from this tour to be much more well-oiled than anything we heard on Wildlife. Again, Paul being very reactionary to bad reviews. And in order to do this, they would purposefully choose from recordings taken at the end of the tour, which is what most of the Wings Over Europe material we've ever heard is. There is, of course, the uh, Wings in Arles show, I believe. Uh, that's taken from a very early part of the tour, the first half. And admittedly, that is a little more rough. But you can tell that when we get to the, the Munich shows, the Gothenburg shows, the... Hague shows, the Groningen shows, that the band are becoming a much more formalised working unit. You know, it's still relatively ramshackle and that's still part of the Wings charm at this point. But importantly, it lacks the utterly unlistenable quirks of that fabled Wings University tour. The tape we're going to be listening to here today... Here today... Ah, you didn't think I was going to do it then today, did you? But yeah, today's tape, the actual recording, the physical disc that we are going to be listening to, not that I've got the physical disc or anything, was not actually a commonly available release and was, as detailed here in the description of the bootleg liner notes, was originally thought to be a different Macca relic entirely. It reads... The wing show on this CD was transferred from a previously unbooted open reel tape marked Wings in Paris 1972, but collectors will recognise the performance, or at least part of it. Sections of it appeared on the rare Oriental Nightfish vinyl bootleg, and a longer segment has changed hands on tape. In both cases, the show was identified as Sweden. Actually, it appears to be neither Sweden nor Paris, although we cannot be entirely sure exactly what it is. McCartney makes no location references during the show, but is heard saying Dank you, which is thank you in Dutch. We have at least extractions from most of the 1972 Dutch shows, and the performances here do not match those. One show that did not make the rounds, though, was the Groningen performance, although we did previously have part of the sound check. So, putting two and two or maybe one and three quarters together, we are guessing that this is the Lost Groningen show, or most of it. The tape plays a good deal longer than the copied-down Sweden tape, and it includes a true anomaly, a version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, a song not known to have appeared on any other wing set list. It is heard where the band more typically broke into Turkey in the Straw. The tape is not complete, however, Missing is the closing segment, Maybe I'm Amazed, Hi Hi Hi, and Long Tall Sally. Oddly though, Best Friend was missing from this source as well, but it had been included in the so-called Sweden tape, 
so the performance from that source was restored to its rightful place here. So if you're confused by that, basically there was a version of Best Friend that was included on a tape that was originally thought to be the Swedish performance, but then they found out that it was actually from this Groningen one, so they've put it back on. Although, as I'm going to explain later, that bootleg just sounds so terrible that we're not going to be actually featuring it here for you to listen to today. This show in Groningen would take place at the Martini Plaza in the centre of Groningen. Sadly, there isn't much of a backstory to this place. It was built in 1969 purely for the simple fact that there was no major venue in Groningen for shows in which to be held. Its overall capacity was around 1,600 seats, though with the stage setup it may have been taken down to around 1,000, 1,200, something like that. So, let's now move on to the songs that the band would actually be playing during their performance in Groningen, as well as the tour as a whole. Of course, I'm going to be going through all of these songs one by one in much more detail very shortly, but I just wanted to break down the selection of songs for the Wings Over Europe tour as a whole, as it's one of the more interesting lineup of songs that I've come across in doing this podcast. It's certainly a much more confident set list in terms of its length, and the band are clearly much more comfortable with being on stage for a longer period of time. The Wings University Tour averaged about 14 songs a show, whereas here the, the setlist is a lot more robust and filled out with a 20 or 21, 22 songs a show on average. Again, it's not Wings Over America, which sits at around 30, 31 tracks a, a show, but you can see that progression on the graph quite clearly. The idea to literally record and work out the next album whilst on tour, though, meant that they had a wealth of material to choose from in terms of creating a set list, at least, again, compared to the last tour, which which had to resort to two renditions of Lucille to pad out each evening. Over the course of the roughly 80-90 to minute set, the band covers a great variety of tones, genres and energy levels with that wonderfully shambolic clusterfuck all over the place wing sentiment. Amongst all of these powerful rock displays we also have a bit of reggae, several love ballads, sombre cautionary tales, country songs, a folk song and even a blooming nursery rhyme. It certainly is a wing set list alright, but rather shockingly we are going to have... Uh, I'm not going to say a focus, but a definite leaning towards playing rockers and rock and roll songs. And whilst I appreciate the fact that it's a pretty comprehensive collection of all of the band's material at this point in time, but this set list isn't without fat to trim or extra leaves to prune, and unfortunately there are moments in this set that are quite cringeworthy, quite embarrassing, and do very much feel like what you'd expect from a wing set list. But hey, what are you going to do? Beggars can't be choosers. And Paul is always known for creating quite odd set lists from time to time. For this show tonight, even with the loss of a performance of Henry's Blues, we still somehow have a total of 21 songs. We have three solo McCartney numbers, three covers, four songs from Wildlife, three non-album singles, one song that would successfully go on to Red Rose Speedway, and a whopping total of seven songs that were intended for, but never made it onto Red Rose Speedway. This means that the lion's share of material that this group of people were privy to listening to would not become legally available for purchase for years, and in in case of some of these songs, decades. 
This is a very strange set of circumstances indeed, as it only goes to further the utter waste of potential that Red Rose Speedway was, as Paul is now making this poor band essentially spend a third of this gig creating buzz that could not be passed on, proved, or profited from in any way. Speaking of Red Rose Speedway, and we're going to be spending a lot of this episode saying Red Rose Speedway, get used to those three words, this tour also reflects the so-called band ethos that Wings were supposedly working under at the time. You know, whilst being the era of Paul McCartney and Wings, this was also the heyday of Paul just wanting to be treated just, just like the basis of the band. And so therefore, long before Wings at the Speed of Sound, in this set list, we actually have band participation on stage. Henry McCulloch got Henry's Blues, at least in, all, in most of the other performances except this Wings Over Groningen one. Linda sings lead on Seaside Woman and sings duet on I Am Your Singer. And Denny sings lead on I Would Only Smile, Will the Circle Be Unbroken and Say You Don't Mind. Denny Sonnewell never sang with wings as far as I'm aware, but here we have every member of the band getting their moment to shine. Whilst this unity and camaraderie didn't follow them into the studio, or at least onto the final tracking of the album, it is oh so intriguingly interesting to see the Wings project, at least for this tour, actually working properly. This recent relative glut of songs also meant that Paul was once again allowed to delay the playing of any Beatles material until the tour in 76. But what is odd is that we still haven't got to the point where Paul is going to ask Denny Lane to just play Go Now. Like, yeah, of course it's better for Denny to play two of his own compositions at this point, you know, in theory. The set also highlights what Paul, at this time, must have considered to be desirable stock in his collection of post-Beatles songs. You know, that little short period between the Beatles and Wings. Yes, we have Shock of Horrors, Eat at Home and Smile Away from Ram. And we will discuss at greater length in just a moment as to why it's those two songs specifically. But, oh, that's just so exciting. In addition to that, we only have one song from McCartney 1, a.k.a. the most obvious song off that album, Maybe I'm Amazed. Not saying we needed That Would Be Something, or Mama Miss America, or Man We Was Lonely or anything. It's just interesting to know that Paul didn't think that anything from his debut album was worth playing until he did an instrumental of Hot As Sun Glasses with Wings in 79. Oddly enough though, inside the tour guide slash pamphlet slash program for the Wings Over Europe tour, or at least in early prints of them, it did advertise that Junk from McCartney 1 was going to be added to the set list, as well as Mama's Little Girl from Red Rose Speedway. Another interesting little cold cut that wouldn't be released until oh, the early 90s or late 80s, something like that. But yeah, enough about what could have been. Let's get down to brass tacks with what actually did get played on that fateful night in Groningen on August 20th, 1972. So yeah, uh, you all heard the intro for this show at the start. The crowd are all excited, possibly only to see Paul, but there's clearly some energy and electricity that is buzzing around in the air in this auditorium 
and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the music, maybe it's the crowd, maybe it's the announcer, maybe it's all three put together, but there's something about it that just gets me going in my nether regions uh, in the way that only few live performances can. So let's just hear that again, shall we? Eat at home? And starting off the gig, Paul moves into a song that got me absolutely weak in the knees when I recognised it. Until I heard it, I never actually knew that Paul had ever performed it live, let alone with Wings, and it, as well as the following song, may or may not be the sole reason I ever considered doing this episode in the first place. It is a track from the Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney album Ram, and it really is a brilliant number to pull right out of the bag for an opener. Get your napkins ready, because your mouth is about to get moist. This is Eat at Home. Yes, yes, I get to talk about Ram on this podcast again. Ugh. One of the best and worst things about the formatting of this podcast and the way I was going to do it was the fact that McCartney's best album, in my opinion, was also his second release. Because this meant that, yes, I could start strong, but it also meant that each episode would take me further and further away from Ram. And just in the way that this episode is just an excuse for me to talk about Wings, this gig in particular is also an excuse for me to talk about Ram. Because Ram is just the best thing ever, ever, ever. And its praises cannot be shouted any louder. Like, Jesus Christ. I found it. The holy grail of every Ram fan. A.K.A. Paul doing a song from Ram live, you know, around the time that Ram was actually released. And this is entirely the last place I expected to find it. I was thinking my live RAM fix was going to come from some poorly recorded sound check in 1997 or 2003, but no, here it is, Eat at Home, being played multiple times across multiple recordings, and it's fucking gorgeous, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else in between. Now, of course, like me, you were probably wondering why out of Ram's cornucopia of tracks did Paul decide that it was going to be the culinary Cullen English track that was going to kick off every show of his new tour, especially considering how good of an opener too many people also would be. Well, it turns out that Eat at Home and its B-side Smile Away were actually released as a single across continental Europe, and, in a similar parallel to the actual tour itself, this particular single was not available in the UK. Or the US, for that matter. The single reached number 7 in the Netherlands, where this gig was taking place, and number 6 in Norway. And so apparently, it was popular enough of a choice for McCartney to pop it in this setlist. Wow, what a time, eh? A period when a single from Ram was popular. It's like some sort of David Lynch dream, isn't it? Right, I should probably come on to the song now, and by God, does this live up to the hype. Fortunately, Eat at Home was never the most complicated song from Ram, and Wings are more than comfortable transposing this song into their sound, 
their rough and ready zest in this early phase is perfect for the imperfect perfection of tracks like Eat at Home. As an opening number, this song also benefits from the energy gained in that musical introduction that you just heard again, and I gotta admit that the whole package impresses the fuck out of me as a Wings fan. Like that little bit where it just goes, ladies and gentlemen, Wings, and then this song kicks in, I'm just buttered up and ready for the whole show. Again, apparently this song's quite popular, so the audience must be so excited and pleased that, that this song is opening the tour, and it really does show that like, these people are just going mad. And I am glad to see that this solo McCartney number does not only well with the crowd, but just, just well in the band format, because they deliver this wonderfully faithful and accurate rendition of the song. Though Wings were always good at pretending that McCartney's early solo releases were pseudo Wings tracks, as you know, we're also going to see the same thing being poured again on the Wings' greatest album, which is another bonus episode that I'd really like to do soon. This song's inclusion does somewhat, though, highlight the fact that in this early period, Wings just don't have the back catalogue that they need to properly fill up a gig. And in this case, if we can't fill up a whole gig, and instead we have to replace it with something, then if that something has to be full band renditions of rare McCartney cuts, then I'm really okay with that. Henry McCulloch also really shines on this track and makes himself very noticeable as a force to be reckoned with within this group right from the get-go. You know, people have probably mostly only heard Wildlife, which didn't include Henry, but now we're going to see that across this performance in this live format, that Henry's just going to come into his own. But, you know, Eat at Home is a particularly fantastic example of this. And he leaves a greater mark on you as a Wings fan than you might expect. You know, Henry always seems to get treated as a, a rather minor figure in the Wings story, especially when compared to Jimmy McCullough. And whilst I've always said Hugh McCracken really should have been the early guitarist for Wings, I am now starting to wonder whether the lack of a Wings Over Europe album really truly harmed Henry McCulloch's legacy more than I first supposed. He's, he's just so clearly a true master of his craft at this point in his career, and whilst he's known for his jazzy, you know, doing a different take here every time style, on this tour he is consistently proving that he can deliver note-perfect guitar parts to any song thrown at him over and over. The fact that Linda is a member of Wings is also such a boon for this track. I mean, outside of the humour of her actually singing on this particularly intimate sexual track of all tracks, what's evident is that her atonal Linda-isms and unique vocal harmonies with Paul are entirely indispensable when faithfully recreating Ram, as well as many other Wings songs, to the point that, you know, it, it becomes obvious that after Linda's death, that was the real reason why not not only Wings didn't carry on, but the real reason why, you know, many other Linda-centric tracks, particularly tracks from Ram, never got performed post-1998 after her death. I love the guitar sound in this one. I love Paul's vocal in the, in this one. Denny Sywell shows his veteran place within the band by absolutely shredding it on the drums. Obviously, this was a song he recorded back originally with Ram. But yeah, we start this gig off incredibly song with a wonderfully saucy opening number. And as a member of the audience, if I was there, I'd be incredibly excited for the next song, which is Smile Away. 
And then we move on to our second number of the evening. And the only thing I can ask you at this point is, what's better than one song of Ram randomly appearing at the start of a Wings of Europe set list? Oh yeah, you guessed it. We do indeed have two songs off Ram randomly appearing at the start of a Wings of Europe set list. And what could be more appropriate to follow Eat at Home than its very own continental single B-side? I hope you brushed, flossed and rinsed this morning, folks. It's Smile Away. Come on now, Paul. Now you really are spoiling me, aren't you? Two songs off Ram? Two? I'm honestly struggling to compose myself here, folks. And yes, there were shows in this tour, such as Belgium, that opened up with the Eat at Home, Smile Away combo double hitter. But this is the one that was recorded. And thank God, because it is just so invigorating to hear the audience just mopping this stuff up. As the second song for the show, of course, I, if I was in the audience, would be digging this song, no matter what became for or after. But I do think it is cool that Paul would actually deliver these two songs in the official A-side, B-side order that they were issued in. For an anal guy like me, it gives the gig a little continuity, uh, especially with the opening numbers. But what it actually does do is keep the momentum of the opening rocker just going a little bit longer. Because the band don't relent, they don't stop between these two songs, they just go right into Smile Away, it's a cracking one-two punch, there's no pause, and they're just establishing that they are this rock and roll force to be reckoned with, and I can't believe that Wings are providing this much excitement in a show. It's such a joy to listen to. In the grand tradition of Paul slightly rearranging songs for a live show, this version of Smile Away isn't identical to the album. It has been rejigged a bit to start with the chorus instead. Obviously, this is borrowing from the She Loves You book of songwriting. This change-up is fun enough, though, for what it is. And as I mentioned earlier, it does manage to keep up the pace of the show. It just keeps everything moving forward, as it really wouldn't have worked with that slow kind of Bow ba da da do da bow ba da da do da build up. Henry McCulloch also inserts an additional screechy, wailing guitar solo onto the closing parts of the song that just adds to what is already a maddeningly enlivening song. And you would never have been able to tell that it was never originally part of the song to begin with. The fact that they let Henry absolutely rip on guitar here also leads me to wonder. And this is something I'm going to bring up throughout the rest of the gig, you know, at least at this period, whether he did have more freedom on stage than we are led to believe in the literature. Now, despite the changes, Wings once again deliver a brilliantly faithful rendition of this song. By this point, they had begun to reap the benefits of their time together. And now with songs like this, a.k.a. songs that the majority of them have actually played before on albums, they actually sound extremely tight as a working band. Whilst rehearsal time is not something you may think of, with Wings 
especially in this period, it's clear that at least with these opening numbers, Paul made sure the band were as tight as a smackhead's rectum. For me, as an audience member though, it's everything that I want from a live version of this song. It's incredibly bouncy, and you so clearly picture the Dutch audience all stoned and jumping and dancing along with a vigour. Like, if you were one of those audience members at this gig who knew or cared as to how Wings were being received so negatively here in the UK, and then you heard this, you would be so confused as to what us Brits just couldn't see. They also do this bit where the rhythm section really quietens down and the band really crank up the tension with a really quiet like bow ba da da do da bow ba da da and you feel it building and building and building until it bursts all over the crowd with a wonderful chorus and they clearly love it as much as I do. Linda's vocals again for a second time in a row now are on point and who of you out there could imagine anyone else other than Linda doing the bow ba da da do da it would just be heresy, wouldn't it? On this podcast, we have been deprived of the drumming of Denny Sywell for quite some time, and songs like Smile Away are proof that Mr. Sywell's legacy within the overall Wings arcing narrative would also have benefited from a live Wings album from the 72-73 period. He's a fucking phenomenal drummer here, and it's clear that his proficiency is not just restricted to the studio. So, we're two songs in, and it's two for two. I am well and truly pumped. I've been sold on the night ahead. Though, if I hadn't have done my homework, I may have been forgiven for assuming that this was just a straight-up McCartney gig. But, the important thing is, Macca and the band, by this point, unequivocally, at least as far as I'm concerned, I don't know about you, but they have dispelled any rumours that they are a bit pants. Moving on, and we have... Bit Bob. Coming in third, we have the first of our songs that are going to be taken from the band's debut album, Wildlife. And in a classic case of typical Paul McCartney, oddball weirdness, he decides to go with the one song from the record that I don't think anyone expected to hear at all. Treat me like a good boy, treat me like a man, it's bit bop. You can go back to our third or fourth episode where we covered wildlife and you will see that I've been in love with this silly nursery rhyme element of McCartney's career that Bit Bop encapsulates so perfectly. So you can imagine how excited I was listening here in 2019 when everyone in the Groningen audience expressed the exact same sentiment. The immediate adulation from the audience the moment they recognised this somewhat throwaway ditty was oddly unexpected for me because in my head it always seemed like very few people like Bit Bop at all. McCartney doesn't like it, most authors don't like it, very few people talk about it on the forums or in comment sections. And yet when my 
Dutch brethren spot Bitbop up on that stage. They hoot and holler. I know this is just post-wildlife, but the legacy of Bitbop has always been one of unenthusiasm. And yet here on the Wings of Europe tour, we, we do have it featuring on every show. And it seems to be going down rather well. So I don't know where, uh, at which point in the narrative, it kind of switched. Was it just after this tour that people and McCartney stopped liking Bitbop? I don't know. I certainly don't know why. Obviously, I don't want this whole gig review to essentially just be me gushing all over the rare Wings oddities that are going to be performed here. But Bitbop is just another one of those songs that would actually send me rather mad if I was there in that audience. Like, if Paul played that for me last year, I would have just simply died. In terms of the gig, it's a nice opportunity to keep the spirits of the audience high. It's a very joyously upbeat number without having to resort to another out-and-out rocker for three in a row, which I know is something Paul would never like to do anyway. The particular performance that Wings give, though, cliche as it sounds, is utterly magical. Again, not a difficult number to reproduce by any means. Many of the Wings songs weren't really. They were produced in, like, a day. But I'm glad that they didn't try and overcomplicate this track when they came back to it. And instead, they've allowed the simplistic sing-along nature of the song to shine through instead. That being said, this really isn't your grandmother's version of Bitbop, with the more peaceful, bucolic elements of the song taking a little bit more of a backseat for a more slightly uh, abrasive edge, where you can really feel that lick just cutting right through you and instead of a you know a kind of campfire uh hoedown it's 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 more of a a pub drinking tune this time around and you know there's this great stomping of feet clapping of hands that extends right into the audience that really captures that intimate nature of the original track uh, but with a much greater audience arena context to it What's also cool is that whilst he wasn't on Wildlife, Henry McCulloch slips right into this number and adds this cracking, twangy guitar that, alongside with his own playstyle, adds a, a slightly, oddly enough, titular, wilder feeling to the song. It gives the song a little, a little more of an evocative Louisiana Bayou atmosphere to it. Like, this is much more of a swampy bit bop. Like, you, you know, you, you could definitely imagine Huckleberry Finn with a, a straw in his mouth floating down the mighty Miss, Mississippi. And just like with Mumbo that we're going to talk about shortly, this is another one of those songs from Wildlife where Paul has actually gone back to it. You know, he's re-approaching the song outside of the confines of oh I've got to make this in four days like Bob Dylan he's gone back to it he's gone back to the drawing board and whilst he hasn't reinvented the wheel with this song particularly it does feel much more complete and much more finished than the final album version we got on Wildlife again maybe if this is the version that they put on Wildlife Maybe the album would feel less shambolic and less thrown together, but obviously Paul was working within the confines of his own artistic creativity. We're going to talk about this again on Mumbo and possibly other tracks on this gig as well, but this is a fantastic version of Bitbop. It has an incredible atmosphere, like probably more so than any other song in this gig. You really do feel like you are there experiencing Wings in 1972 play Bitbop as coy and as twee as that sounds, but... <laughs> 
what more could you ever ask for if you're listening to this podcast? Uh, we are three for three now in this gig. We're doing incredibly well, especially for me. I've had nothing to moan about so far, but maybe with the next one, I will. Mumbo! Following on from Bitbop, we have another track from Wing's first release to the public. And <sighs> coming back to this song gives me a similar feeling to seeing an arch enemy or childhood bully. You know, some wounds never heal. But nevertheless, take it away, Tony. Of course, it's Mumbo. All the way back in episode three, you were really a thorn in my side. But what becomes more and more obvious to me every time I come across a live version of Mumbo from this period is the fact that, and brace yourselves here, folks, it actually sounds pretty damn good. Yeah, rather infamously, I have somewhat softened my initial hatred, you know, true loathing of this song, but... When Paul and the band takes all of the best bits of this track and reinterprets it for the stage and delivers it in this wonderfully raucous manner that we get to listen to here, I've got to admit, it continues to make a little more sense. Again, never thought I'd say this, but it really is quite cool to see it on the set list here. Though I reckon even if I was still quite as angry as I was at Mumbo, I think seeing it live would still have a great, a great novelty to me, even if only for comedic purposes. Not that we're ever, ever going to have a chance to see this song on another tour anywhere else. Meaning these gigs have some of the most unique collections of McCartney material ever. And as a self-proclaimed Macca nerd, I can tell you that I, I'm just geeking out at this point. Even if it is just mumbo. Not sure how I would have felt if I'd seen it at the time either. Because not only is this, you know, simply a relic for the purposes of cataloguing, but it's another one of these examples of Paul having this uncanny ability to take lesser album tracks and make them awesome live. And I did say awesome, I really do like this version of Mumbo, because here, unlike the album version, they have actually taken the time to practice the song and actually perform it a few times. Yes, Paul, maybe certain songs on Wildlife would have benefited from a couple of more takes. <laughs> They've also performed it live a few times now by this point in Groningen in 72, and all the best bits have been accentuated and all the annoying ones reduced, at least from my perspective. As with a couple of other tapes we've heard of this track in various bootlegs, both in the studio and out, we get the guitars brought right to the forefront. And once again, this really helps facilitate the idea that Wings are here to rock. Like Denny and Henry do some great guitar dueling and they do some fantastic harmonies and a, this like great call and response back and forth with the guitars. And it's so rare to see that in a Wings gig just at all anyway, but to hear it in Mumbo was quite unexpected for me, and that really caught me off guard in a very fun way. 
you know, we've had this brief little pause with Bitbox where we've slowed things down slightly, but now we're right back into that heavy sound that we don't associate with Wings or their first album, and it's fantastic. Once again, I'm forced to ask, why was this sound, this gruff force, never replicated on record? Who knows? Especially in the case of Mumbo. If, by the time I did, you know, done this podcast, I probably would have listened to an early Wings live album. I definitely listened to Wings Over America before I started this podcast as well. Once again, it's one of those great historical what-ifs. If there had been another version of Mumbo, this version of Mumbo, available to me from an earlier period, would I have the same negative feelings about the song? I'd say most certainly not. It really is weird how much of an impact the recording of a song can have in how it's conveyed to an audience both me and you, and if Paul hadn't decided to deliver Wildlife to us so badly and instead opened up Wings' debut album with some proper production, with some lush layered guitar work between two fantastic guitarists, or maybe if Paul just put in a little bit more time and effort in as a whole, then maybe the entire Wings narrative may have started with a much more confident step. Hate to bring up the same point time and time again, but Henry McCulloch is an absolute joy on this track. Again, not playing on a song that he's featured with on the album, and he just reminds us again that why that is such a shame, because the addition of the second guitar in this arrangement really beefs up the sound considerably. And with a song as, as wild and crazy as Mumbo, it's one of the few that appropriately allows him to do his jazzy improvisational thing. It should also be a good time to mention McCartney's voice here, because so many contemporary gig reviews that I've done on this show seem to be spent bashing his voice or making consolation speeches. And I just want to relish in some time spent actually enjoying his voice at its peak. Paul here is an, in his absolute prime, and I'm just so grateful that they took the time to record this gig and so much of this tour as a whole, because the treasure of listening to him shred his vocal cords is unlike any other. This is also a really short gig by his modern standards as well, his three-hour Titanic sessions. So here, he's really going to attack some of those numbers vocally, and Mumbo is a brilliant example of that. And yeah, this has been my shockingly positive review of Mumbo. You know, despite all of my biases and all of my countless McCartney-based primal scream therapy sessions, Mumbo may very well be my favourite song in this gig so far. 1882. For the fifth number on tonight's set, we have the first of what will become the lost tracks from this tour, aka the first of many songs that we, the people, wished have would have gone on the album to replace Lou, the first Indian on the moon, or the Red Rose Medley. Let's take a step back in time with 1882. Okay, gonna slow it down a bit now for the next song, which is a new song, and it's called 1882. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
This baroque tale of hardship, crime, punishment and death was clearly a part of the response from wildlife moving on to Red River Speedway where McCartney wanted to showcase that Wings really could sit down and write some proper serious songs. And yeah, this is a really serious number. Ooh, look how serious we are. But in all seriousness, I am a huge fan of 1882. I really think it is a genuine quote-unquote lost Wings ballad. Yeah, I even did the finger thing there. And, okay, it's kind of long, and some people may find that it drones on a little, very much like myself. But, as I've said before, it's a uniquely ambitious McCartney ballad, especially for this period, and it too is added to this list of nerdy cold cuts from this gig-slash-tour that is always going to get high marks from me. It's funny because I can't really say that this is a faithful version of the song because he never actually made it onto a record officially. That being said, Paul knew there was something in this song and he tries it at all sorts of paces and tempos across this tour. But with this one, I think it might... Actually, I think it might be the longest as well. But despite there being a few recordings of 1882 uh, in various formats from this period, this is easily the best one to listen to, in my opinion. Whether it's too indulgent or not, I think perhaps it was just something with this particular gig, with this particular audience, I think he really finds what resonates in this song. You know, if there was any universal element to this song, McCartney certainly finds it in this gig. On top of that, we have a cracking performance from the band as well. They really click. They act as one. You know, they've already felt each other out with this song. And in the form that it's in, it is the standout interpretation of 1882. That being said, though, it is odd that this, of all songs, is being placed as the first ballad of the gig. And it's hard to imagine a world where a Paul McCartney gig even has the time to be able to include such an obscure number like this. But again, we're here in 72 in Groningen, and oh my gosh, McCartney is experimenting with us with some wickedly non-McCartney-type material. Like, uh, this would be quite shocking, I imagine, for the audience at the time. Or at least very interesting, I hope. Now, I know you're going to laugh, and I know that I'm a McCartney dork hosting a McCartney podcast, but honestly, I believe that with a bit of studio time, they could have gone back... Again, this is kind of like the wildlife thing from, from earlier. They could have gone back and you know, tweaked it slightly, maybe trimmed something, maybe added something. And if they had done that, this really could have been one of the great Red Rose Speedway ballads. And there could have been this triple hit of Little Lamb Dragonfly, My Love, and 1882. I'm being serious. With just a little bit of TLC and a certain je ne sais quoi... This could have prevented the tragedy that was Lou First Indian on the Moon being included on that record. Speaking of that album, with 2020 hindsight, you really can tell that 1882 was definitely the first song on this set list that was composed with Henry McCulloch present. Gone are the additional expansion pack Henry McCulloch guitar elements that were never there on the original part. And instead, we have a song that is built around him being part of the composition. Here he has room to breathe and he really starts doing some interesting things with his guitar here. And never want to break tradition, of course he's just a treasure on this recording. That strained wail we get from his guitar is strikingly emotive for such a dirgy song. 
and it matches the uplifting harmonious vocals perfectly as it pleads and begs with the listener along with Paul to not steal the bread. How many other songs can you say you have heard where a guitar has begged you to not steal? It's as unique as an experience as it is an emotive one. So yeah, I'm not going to be like 1882. I'm not going to drone on and 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 on. But this is another insanely oddball addition to a McCartney slash Wings set list. And these people here might not know how lucky they are. This is a rare beast that you're never going to see again outside of these shows. So even if I didn't dig this song as much as I do, I'd probably still be singing its praises in some form or another. I would only smile. One of the many aspects that were lost in translation from the potential Wings Over Europe album and final single disc of Red Rose Speedway was the inexcusable loss of songs sung or led by other members of the band. Fortunately, here at Groningen, we don't have that issue, and we get to hear the very first Wings composition written by Denny Lane. And as some sort of oddball, low-key Brian Wilson tribute, we've had Smile Away, and now we have I Would Only Smile. Okay, I've never liked I Would Only Smile. I find it laughable, really, that Denny thought it was good enough to say for his 1979 release, Japanese Tears, because it was much of a dud here in Groningen 72 as it was then. Don't forget, folks, I'm on an eternal quest to get Denny Lane on this show for an interview, and yet, for the sake of my own journalistic integrity, if I have any at all... I am forced to totally scupper my chances of that booking, as I just cannot be positive about this particular material at all. Look, you know I've got nothing against Denny Lane. In fact, long-time listeners of this show will know that I've always fought Denny's Corner, one of Denny's songs closes the show. Yeah, I fuck with Denny, so what? But we have to face the facts here, folks. As kind as Paul is in letting Denny have a song this early in their touring career... I have to say right now that they should have just stuck with Denny playing Go Now, at least for this period. Yeah, I said it, I'm going to be that guy. As much as I love Denny on lead, it just brings the whole gig to a halt for me, for the fact that it just isn't objectively as enjoyable as any of the other McCartney material surrounding it, even the lesser McCartney stuff in this gig. Like, yeah, this is better than Blue Moon of Kentucky, but, you know, that's not much competition. That's kind of damning with faint praise. This kind of dirt is almost more excusable on an album, because at least you, you can skip it. Instead here, though, this poor audience, instead of being treated to a decent bluesy Denny Lane number, they're forced to sit through this putrid love tune that appears to be kind of aping McCarty in this horrible cod silly love song sense that that doesn't land at all uh yeah the, the melody chorus is kind of memorable you know the you know who you are 
Never very far. I would only smile. Like, that's pretty much the only bit that's ever going to be remembered ever. I could barely tell you a single word of the lyrics outside of the title. And had Denny not been the fantastic lightning rod that he was for Paul to bounce ideas off and being this great virtuoso multi-instrumentalist, I'm not even sure if his place within the band would have been as solid. We all know that Denny was never going to match Paul's innate songwriting ability, but like Linda, Denny is a key part of the Wings' inner trio and sound. But here, especially at the start of the group, when every song that they play counts all the more, I just can't get behind such a tepid performance of such a completely dull and middle-of-the-road standard rock and roll number. And it's a rock and roll number that definitely feels more like a Denny Lane song. It's probably more appropriate that it did end up on Japanese tea. It doesn't feel like a song that is written for the band. It's so unwings that had I not been so immersed in researching the backstory for this gig, I would have just assumed that Denny was doing a cover like Richard Corey or something. And yeah, I get it. I'm probably spending too much time bashing this song because they were demoing loads of material around this period in prep for Red Rose Speedway. And... The kind of the, the sad thing is, I was you know you can picture Denny expecting this great adulation and this great reaction for this song, and it just never came. Poor Denny. Do let me know though uh, if you in fact do prefer this Denny Lane ditty. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail or hit me up on the Twitter at mccartneypod. Maybe you can convince me otherwise. But yeah, for me this is a complete dead end, and I'm likely to skip over it given half the chance. And until Denny writes some meatier material when it comes to filling out set lists, it probably would just be best to let Denny stick to the covers. That's all I'm saying. Give Ireland back to the Irish. As we move on to the preceding song, Paul starts to work up the crowd as he boasts slash rants that the next number was actually banned in England a.k.a. the one place in the world that the tour would not be going because it was, as he put it, controversial. And, of course, this means everyone, you and I included, knew that it could only be one thing. Yes, boy, it is Wing's first single, and Henry is, by golly, going to love playing this one, all right. It's Give Ireland Back to the Irish. <laughs> OK, thank you. Thank you. What? Got it. Okay, um, this next song we're going to do now got banned in England because it was considered a bit controversial. Anyway, I don't think it was banned here. So give Ireland back to the Irish. So when Paul does introduce that one, you know, the controversial line, you can really tell that he is reveling in one of the few moments in history where Wings are a genuinely cool band 
And good for him, really, because after this and the weed bust around this time, it's going to be a pretty fallow period again before Wings would be at a similar level of uh, street chic, shall we say. Now, the more I sit here and think about it, though, it is admittedly rather cheeky for McCartney to perform this song at all. I mean, not only did the band play this song at every gig of their shambolic Wings UK University tour, but now they are playing this political rally song being sung by one of the most influential people in the world at this point at every single gig of their foreign tour. This totals Give Ireland Back to the Irish at 37 performances this year alone, which is a bold statement for any band. But for Paul, he's actually sticking his neck out to a certain degree, though this campaign probably would have been a bit more effective if the song itself was a little more effective. You know, Give Ireland Back to the Irish can tend to fall a little short of the mark in terms of coming down on one side too hard or the other. It's a little bit too much of an all-you-need-is-love type song rather than a true protest song. One thing that can be said, though, about transposing this song from the record to the live format, and, well, as silly as it sounds, it's the fact that McCartney actually has to sing the verses, rather like, you know... Actors in a movie can talk and whisper at any level, whereas live in the theatre they have to enunciate. And on the single for Give Ireland Back to the Irish, Paul kind of semi-talks his way through the verses before launching into his signature throaty chorus. But here, being in this large theatre in front of thousands of people, Paul subsequently delivers the song with, with a mightier force and passion than we are used to. And for an anthem, even a half arsed anthem such as this, the crowd does get subsequently riled up. And by golly, it actually kind of works. As I said, I'm sure Irish-born Henry is having an absolute blast playing this one. And again, in the live format of this song, he has a little more room to breathe in terms of his playing. Though, if you had to pick one song that McCartney would not be able to critique Henry's wild playing, it would be this song. Yeah, honestly, not too much to say about this one. It is a very faithful version of the, of, of the song. The band are still displaying a shocking tight-knitness and uh, professionalism. And yeah, I really dig it. It's a really cool Wings moment. And like McCartney, I too enjoy seeing Wings be cool, even if it's just for a millisecond. Blue Moon of Kentucky! Moving on, and we're at the part of the show that I really didn't want to talk about. And the reason for that is because the following song is Paul at his most unironically uncool, in my own personal opinion. Ugh, covers are bad enough as it is. But now we get to see Paul put the band through the same kind of numbers that would bore Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly to death years later. This is... Blue Moon of Kentucky. You know how I mentioned earlier about how both Paul himself and I were enjoying the fact that Wings were actually being cool for once? 
Well, in that classic David Chase fashion, any pleasant normality must be ripped immediately asunder, and Paul will now decide to squander any of his hard-earned gains in terms of street cred in one fell swoop by going from a banned politically controversial rocker to this cover of the Bill Monroe country western standard? Uh, okay. Again, this isn't the Sam Bash's country music hour. This is Paul or Nothing, and I can truthfully say that I've got really nothing against this song in particular. In fact, I've always known the Elvis version and liked it quite a bit. But I'm not here to question whether this is a good song, because Paul never wrote it. What I am here to point out, though, is that this song simply has no place being slap-bang in the middle of a concert for a supposedly cool, hip, upcoming rock band that are there to blow your fucking head off. And the fact that it comes right after Give Ireland Back to the Irish only exacerbates this feeling of this contrast from cool to uncool. Yeah, they play it well, but they are playing a song that completely brings the gig to a second halt. And even now, you can picture all the enthusiasm in the room going staler by the second. To further irk me, this song is essentially taking up another potential solo McCartney, Wildlife, or even potential Red Rose Speedway track. So there are plenty more interesting versions here. This isn't the Wings University tour where they're struggling to fill up a set list. I'm annoyed that there are covers on this tour at all, really. As I said, I knew Paul would regularly subject his band into having to perform these classic rock and roll country standards of the 40s and 50s, but I never knew he had the, the gonads, the balls, to actually do the same to his audience. Though, when you actually listen to the recording, the Euro porridge audience, with their lack of internet or mass media in general, all clap along in time and are seemingly loving it. So what do I know, eh? Despite the huge rant, I don't have much else to say about the actual song itself. It's a proficient band doing one of the standards. What do you expect? The mess? Then, after that absolutely rousing performance, Paul informs the audience that after the next song, they'll be taking a quick break, and that we, the audience, should use that time to go and get a drink or something. Well, Paul, I've bought my drink hot dog program, tour t-shirt, hat mug, and keyring. So, if you aren't too busy flogging the merch, Paul, can we hear the mess? This has always been one of the greatest of Wings Easter eggs, and I'm sure we've probably spoken before about how The Mess along with Soily were the two songs twinned together that essentially defined the early Wings setlist and sound. Together, they really would have helped beef up the rock and roll portion of a Red Rose Speedway, and this gig here in Groningen is a perfect display of that. It's not terribly complicated rock, but it's fucking loud, it's legitimately aggressive, and if you were there, you'd be jumping around like a mad thing, because there's so much energy here. 
I know this episode seems to be several points reiterated over and over, but this set list is so fucking weird, man. Like, you look at the, everything he did from the Paul McCartney World Tour onwards in 89, and even to some degree Wings Over America onwards, and you see that the format is there. Those songs are always going to be played forever. You know, you're always going to get Hey Jude, Maybe I'm Amazed, The Long and Winding Road, Blackbird, Yesterday. It's all there. Whereas this whole period apart from My Love, has essentially been wiped clean from the Macassette list for good, and I can't help but marvel in all of these oddities. It's a McCartney deep cut fan's wet dream. There are some nice guitar harmonies between Denny Lane and Henry in this one too, which is also quite unique, both in this set list and in their live sound as a whole. Which, now that, I, now that I'm talking about it, is something that set Wings apart as a non-guitarist band, you know, they've had great guitarists in the band, but rarely was there ever much interplay or back and forth or even competition between styles and players. Like so many points in this gig review, this is another part of the wing sound that I wish was developed further. A more dueling style, a more complex guitar sound in general, a heavier sound. Again, gotta reiterate the point, could have potentially steered wings in a much more confident direction this early on. And the crowd love it. So I don't see why McCartney was so reluctant to go that direction and went so soft with Red Rose. Obviously this track would go on to be the B-side for the single release of My Love, so out of all the lost tracks on today's list, this is the only one that managed to sneak through onto some form of print. Though, like the next track on this list, that version would also be taken from the performance at The Hague. Something I did notice about The Mess is that lyrically, it's lacking. Obviously the chorus is pretty damn dope, and whilst it makes the turn of phrase, what a mess I'm in, far cooler than anyone else ever else could make it. The fact of the matter is, rather like other potentially true classic Macca rockers like Rock Show, Junior's Farm, or dare I say it, Soily, there is this strange attitude from Paul whereby he is so confident in the rock element of a track that he puts in no effort whatsoever into the words. There's nothing going on here at all. 0% content whatsoever. And you know that it is this that prevents the mess from being anything other than the most well-known of Obscure Wings tracks. Overall though, another fantastic performance. The band is firing on all cylinders. And despite Paul's efforts to get me to the confectionery stand, I'd be sat in my seat, baying and foaming at the mouth for more deep-cut Red Rose Speedway tracks. Speaking of which... Best friend! Oh great, another song where people are going to debate whether it's about Lennon or Linda. Right, here we go. For those of you who have listened to our episodes with my good chum Tom Quee, you will know that the combative lyrics of this next song are more than applicable to my life in oh so many ways. It's another song from Red Rose Speedway that, thanks to the McCartney Archive Collection release, has recently wormed its way into my ear quite deeply, and I can't wait to defend how rubbish it is. This is Best Friend.
Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, the clip that you just heard was actually not taken from the Wings in Groningen gig, and sadly the actual audio was recorded very poorly, so instead you just heard the Antwerp show that was recorded three days later. This is the version you can all hear on Spotify and YouTube, and is part of the remastered box set that came out earlier this year. But if that doesn't float your boat, then you can get a version of Live in Amsterdam that's also out there on the net. Now, I would love to know if any of you out there reckon you'd be able to tell the difference, though, if I just bullshitted lied and said that this audio was from the Groningen gig. From what I've been able to garner over the various recordings of this song, though, the audio you just heard should be a fairly accurate representation of what the Groningen crowd heard. Again, not the most intricate of interplays musically here. This is McCartney doing his thinks he's totally been cooler than he actually is style of rock and roll. But the lyrics have a really early Beatles straightforwardness to them. McCartney sings it incredibly well. The rhythm section is really fun and boppy in that innocently lightweight sort of way. I mean, I don't feel like I should be too defensive here. I would gladly fight to the death over the superiority of this track over When the Night, One More Kiss and Three Quarters of the Red Rose Medley. Yes, okay, I know that this song might be one of the most bog-standard, cookie-cutter, copy-and-paste, written-in-his-sleep pieces of generic rock and roll that McCartney has ever produced. And yes, I know that there isn't exactly a mass of people who were upset that this song never made it onto the final Red Rose Speedway, but... There's something about the raw simplicity of this song, its corny lameness, that brings me back over and over again. I never like to use the phrase guilty pleasure, but I think in this case it might actually be applicable, because objectively I know that this is filler material, but despite that, I'm always singing along to that super catchy chorus. So yeah, Shock Horror, another song I really like from this gig. If I could say more about this one, I would. But the tune really is that simple. Moving on. Soily. Pressing on with the next number, and we have what I consider to be the sister track to The Mess, in that it's a big powerhouse number that exists to remind you that Wings were a decent rock and roll band to begin with, far too long after the fact, and far too long after any of it matters. Still, at least it appeared on Wings Over America as an Easter egg of sorts, a nod of the cap to this period, if you will. Get your trowels and spades ready. This is Soily. By no means am I the biggest champion of Soily, and even after the release of the Red Rose Speedway archive, it still hasn't become a song that I regularly listen to, if at all. But here, at this performance, I am completely sold on this song. 
Once again, see Paul or Nothing episodes pass him for similar points explored in greater depth. But yeah, this is the sound I wish Wings would have pursued from this period. This is genuinely exciting stuff, and the vast majority of the public will never know, nor never believe, what the band are able to accomplish here. I went back and listened to a couple of renditions of Soily from the 76 Wings Over America tour, and my god do I prefer these earlier versions of the track, such as here, live in Groningen in 72. It's almost a different song in its entirety. There's just something about the 76 lineup of the band that when it comes to doing this song, uh, it both comes across as too polished and rehearsed and rushed, like they're, they're just really trying to get through it to get to the end of the gig. Whereas what you and I just heard there was a performance with a little more chutzpah, a little more raw energy, and is delivered in this wonderfully dirty chugalug fashion that screams everything you could possibly want from this early phase one type of Wings gig. Because apart from 1882 and Blue Moon of Kentucky, this has been a fully stocked, locked, unloaded rock gig, which is absolutely insane when you think about it. And aside from Paul chunging in a ballad and a cover in here and there to break up the sound a bit, you really get the sense here that Wings are a attempting this idea of being a quote rock band and whilst they may be in denial as to what type of band they are the results do speak for themselves because even if it's a little brief flash in the pan wings are quite a cool band here now i must be explicit when i say that it is the sound that i wish the band would continue exploring for as i've mentioned in previous reviews of the mess this song suffers far too heavily from the handicap of having a genuinely strangely heavy rock and roll sound that is actually quite interesting for Wings that is let down by absolutely nonsense placeholder filler lyrics. Sadly, the lyrical formula is something that Maka will pursue later on rather than the awesome thuggish bass lines and the fist-pumpy guitar sound, but oh well. Speaking of that rocky sound, what we have done in the past, we did an episode on a double Redro Speedway album, but what would be interesting now, though, would be reconstructing a version of Redro Speedway that actually focused on the rock and roll side and less on the McCartney pastiche. What would that album have looked like? What tracks would we have had? I think, obviously, you'd still have My Love, because that would be the big single of the time, but instead of having that soppy sound drench the entire album... Uh, I think the only other ballad you may have had would have been something like 1882, just because it is that weird. And then, well, I think in terms of the material that we'd have to choose from, this isn't going to be in, in any order, but we'd have Night Out, Get on the Right Thing, Big Barn Bed, The Mess, Best Friend, Soily, I Would Only Smile, Hi Hi Hi, and then cap it all off with Live and Let Die, maybe? Like, you've got a lot of rock and roll songs there. It would be a very heavy album. I think it would be a lot more consistent than the Red Rose Speedway that we ultimately got. Whether it would have been received as warmly, who knows? It's going to be another one of those fantastic what-ifs. But <laughs> with that formula, with that format, you really do have to make some heavy-hearted cuts with the material there. You know, there is no single pigeon. But going back to that alternative reality, you know, you call this album something saucy, like Wing Spread, maybe. Give it a decent, controversial album cover, and maybe Wings get taken seriously as a rock and roll entity. 
There you are. There's two mini theoretical bonus episodes you've had in this one. Now how's that for value? Yeah, Soily. It's no classic, but as Wings are showing time and time again here, they are a force to be reckoned with in this live format, and when they put their mind to it, they can almost pass themselves off as a proper rock and roll band. And again, going back to these fascinating what-ifs that draw me back to Wings over and over again, you know, Soily represents that. And whilst I do think it is the lesser of the two in terms of it and the mess, with the mess being the superior twin, this song, it's still kind of fun for what it is. I am your singer. You know I have a soft spot for Linda, and an even softer spot for Paul's love for the lovely Linda. So yeah, can't wait to get into this one. This is I am your singer. Once again, Paul announces that they are about to play I Am Your Singer and the crowd is just as excited as I would have been and maybe it's just that the people at these gigs are more likely to have bought the album anyway but maybe, just maybe, Wildlife wasn't the massive failure that Macca pertains it to be. Of course, I now, as a dweeby 20-something in 2019, am totally biased towards I Am Your Singer and again, I am geeking out here at how wonderfully unique and full of cold cuts this set list is. As you should be, because this is some mwah, fantabulous material here. Was I ever going to have to say anything negative about this performance? Probably not. So much of wildlife has actually been played during this gig, and that is something that sadly will never happen again, because when more material you know comes available for Paul, he will wipe these songs off the face of the earth, like the smallpox virus or the dodo bird. And because of that, I obviously have to take what I can get. But fortunately for me, what I do have access to, what has been recorded, has always been a wonderfully sentimental, gooey, lovey-dovey moment in the middle of this hard rock and roll gig that actually takes advantage of the, the fact that they have this husband-wife combo in the band. You know, you can picture a spotlight on the both of them and the crowd quietly absorbing this wonderfully sentimental love between a husband and wife that's a little more mature than the love songs that he was singing in the early 60s. And to answer Elton John's question, you really can feel the love tonight. Rather like Bitbop though, we have this shift from the family-friendly-slash-universal rating to a kind of PG-12, PG-13 level of I Am Your Singer for this audience. And, you know, again, we are treated to a version of a song from Wildlife that is more polished and more band-oriented, a song that's been a little more thought out. And what they've done with it is they've added this, mostly on the part of Denny Sywell, this exotic south-of-the-border drum style, and we've got these maracas, and this, you know, romantic little ballad is 
is almost given the uh, kind of samba or rumba treatment. And that's just such a fascinating direction to take a song that was essentially just a little ditty that Paul and Linda would sing whilst they were up on the farm in Scotland as early as like 1670. Though when addressing the heavier side of this track, the main, well I say heavier, quote unquote, the main contributor to that sound is of course Henry McCulloch. And since he wasn't on the album again, they do actually give him something to do. Uh, they give him two, count them, two solos in two new musical breaks that aren't on the album track. And ultimately, they are brilliant additions to the song. They actually give it a little more length, a little more staying power. You know, if this song was this long on the album, maybe we wouldn't have been forced to such a long rendition of Some People Never Know. And what these solos do is they take a song that was a, a very, very small, very, very quiet track, again, like Bit Bop, and making it a song worthy of filling a large hall or arena. This and the next song also mark out a purposefully placed little Linda McCartney spotlight, which is absolutely adorable for Paul to do. Unfortunately, it is clear that much in the way that modern McCartney's touring band supports him vocally, Linda is 100% being supported and guided here by McCartney's own vocals through this song. I mean, some of you may have seen the footage in 1970, I think, taken up on the Scottish farm where they both sing this and Linda just can't do it. But if you think that a sheer lack of ability to do something can prevent me from enjoying it, then you really have been paying attention to the quality of this podcast and the arse of me performing it. No points for guessing that I was going to be totally endeared by this one. The song represents an important, formative part of my life, which is also when I started this podcast. So without being too nostalgic, let's just say that, again, I'm so grateful that Paul and Linda gave this song the live treatment. The band do it great justice, and it too joins the ranks of the What If Wildlife album that would have featured songs that would have had had just a little more work on them, a little more TLC. Seaside Woman. Next up, we are off to the beach for a Bacardi and Coke as Linda, now warmed up from the last number, is going to serenade us with a track that would go on to be covered by some band called Susie and the Red Stripes. Hashtag, I wonder who they are. This is Seaside Woman. Like I said, y'all know I've got a soft spot for Linda. A spot that is bigger than she really deserves because we all know she was no born musician or performer. She was an incredible activist, philanthropist and photographer and, uh, you know, as well as a foil for Paul. But this was not her natural territory here in Groningen, 72. Yeah, she isn't as nervous and completely all over the place like she is during the Wings University tour, but it's not as much as an improvement as I would have liked, honestly, Linda. 
see me after class. You know, she's not doing as well as she would, let's say, in the Wing 72 tour to, to, to support Back to the Egg when she actually does quite well. This is the one that Paul introduces as the first song that Linda ever wrote. And oh, I think Paul just puts too much pressure on Linda in saying that. Because whilst I love Seaside Woman, I don't think either the song or Linda are in the best place to perform it. And ultimately, it's it's just going to be built up and the audience are going to feel let down. And Linda's not going to feel like she's done it well. And the band are not going to feel like playing it. So whilst it's a fantastic Easter egg for me, it doesn't work in the gig. And it probably shouldn't be there, if I'm being honest. Again, before I'm accused of hating this song, what I mean is that, you know, the studio version, we get the best possible version that Linda could offer, but when she's forced, and I do say forced, into doing live solo vocals, she, she just can't cut the mustard. And even if Linda gave us the best vocals that she's ever given us, you know, kind of band on the run type stuff, or London Town type shit, the song still wouldn't work, because... It doesn't actually sound anything like the Seaside Woman that we would come to love when it was released later. It doesn't have any of the synthy sound. It doesn't have the layers of studio wizardry that was going on during the Red Rose Speedway sessions. It's a much more band-orientated track. That being said, Henry does absolutely nail the, the awesome synthy guitar solo in, from the song, and he does replicate that fantastically. But rather than a kind of proggy reggae version of this song it does become like a live semi-rocky version of the track that takes away a lot of its kind of kitsch charm and it doesn't work and linda's trying to do these really powerful vocals that again better look next time i'm not going to rag on linda this isn't the podcast to do that but i am a huge fan of seaside woman I remember hearing it in a restaurant whilst I was having lunch a few months ago and absolutely being blown away by that. And to have it delivered so shoddily and haphazardly here is just a, a bit a bit of a letdown for me. Uh, it's, a, it's probably one of the low parts of the gig, especially when we move on to the next song as well. Say you don't mind. Following on from a classic Lost Wings reggae number, we move on to a song that is so lost that I'd literally never heard of it before and knew nothing about. Like, I know these early Wings days are rife with strange little oddities and that this is obviously just another one of them, but the thing is, I'm sure I must have had to have covered this song on one of our Hot Hits and Cold Cut episodes, so for me to absolutely have no memory of this song probably says it all, doesn't it? Never mind. This is Say You Don't Mind. Gosh, Denny, you're really not making this episode any easier on the on either of us, are you? Okay. Why break tradition? 
I'm going to come hard and fast again with this one. With Say Don't Mind, Denny's proving that he's really not bringing home the songwriting bread in this era. Again, there's a little bit, you know, half of a melody that I kind of get my ear worked around, kind of that. But again, the song doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't progress in a way that's satisfying. It feels like Denny's still writing Denny Lane songs rather than wing songs. and It doesn't fit the rest of the gig aesthetic at all. I wish he was just singing Go Now instead. There is one oddly out of place yet terrifically magical scream delivered by Denny that I cannot deny. Uh, <laughs> that I cannot take away from him. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, for maybe two, three whole seconds of this song, I was suitably captivated. But along with Seaside Woman, this is the low point of the gig that I'm happy just to blow through quite quickly because this is a Denny Lane song that I don't think I'm ever going to think about again after this episode, especially since I probably must have covered it before. Wildlife! After that, we go back one last time to Wing's debut album. Well, I can't really say the title of the album and then say a witty quip about, about the song title, as it is the title track. So, let's crack on. The band proceeds to do a rendition of Wildlife. this one, Paul gives no introduction at all, and instead he heads right into those haunting keys, and the crowd, once again, erupt into a sea of applause for a song that is supposedly often an unpopular album. Either the stadium is filled with superfans, or maybe Wildlife really is as good as I think it is. Right folks, this one is a real gem, and I mean a gem, I'm, I'm just going to come out and say that right away. You know, I'm all aboard that Wildlife hype train ting. And with this performance of the title track, my love for this gig is forever confirmed. I would be totally transfixed. I would be transmogrified during this performance. This was one of the songs also performed on the Wings University tour. So the band have revisited this track twice now. And their inside out knowledge of this song shines all the clearer. Like, it's so cool that in a gig such as this, where the quality can be rather inconsistent, objectively that they were able to deliver this particular number with such with such ferocity and to the standard of things like my love or maybe I'm amazed level material. Again, it truly is such a shame that Macca never re revisited this black sheep of his discography. They just get that drone down so well. They get the mood and the atmosphere of wildlife down to a T. You could imagine that they were just playing the fucking record through the speakers. The hypnotic keys are clearly having an effect on the audience. I know they'd be having an effect on me. And you can just feel that everyone is just hanging on his every word during this song. 
especially during this very emotional bit towards the end, that just left me with my mouth agape. Uh, it's this addition of this breakdown segment where Paul, Denny and Linda do this cool trio vocal harmony bit that, in the context of the whole song, along with the, the dirgy droning keyboards, made for a very unexpectedly magical moment. And the longer I listened to it, the more I never wanted it to end. Suddenly all the raucous loudness had like subsided and wings were just tugging at your heartstrings. Like not only has the whole song been building up to this moment as well as the you know subsequent final run of the chorus but it feels like the whole gig has kind of been building up to such a point of musical perfection. I know I'm going to come across as like a real wings wanker here but this performance of Wildlife borders on the truly transcendental. You know the band really are going beyond here. This all too brief moment here is just as good, if not better than what any of the other solo Beatles and their bands are doing live. This is Wings at the height of their powers. And if you were unaware of any of the baggage surrounding them at the time, then you would have just supposed that McCartney had bagged one of the best post Beatles bands in the business. They absolutely nail it folks. I cannot stress that enough. And for fans like me of the early Wings phase, of the early Wings era, you know, I, I just can't believe my luck. It's a great number to have at this point in the gig. And after such a low point of Seaside Woman and Say You Don't Mind, you know, this song is a, is a wickedly appropriate palate cleanser. Like, I just totally forgot about those two lame duck numbers. I am totally back on board, back in the spirit. McCartney has me in his palm again, and I'm ready for the next number. Will the circle be unbroken? Then, after the rendition of Wildlife that captivated me so, we move on to the second song of the night that I had no clue about whatsoever. However, unlike the last song, whereby I think I probably should have been more prepared, this next song is fortunately as random and as one-off as it possibly gets. This is Paul asking an important question through the form of a song with Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Thank you. 
Right, folks, I'm not sure if I'm about to show my age or just my inherent lack of musical knowledge here, but I I never heard of this one until this episode, and now I know that it's it's not what I expect it to be at all. It's, it's actually, a, or according to Wikipedia, a popular Christian hymn written in 1907. So the band really are uh, going into the back catalogue of the classics for this one. Again, I wish it was just a solo McCartney song, but I am always interested in seeing what weird little cold cuts Wings like to deliver. This is a, a case more, though, of the trivia being more interesting to me than the song itself. Because this song, this song that I'd never heard of, was actually only ever performed once by Wings on this tour, and therefore only once publicly in their entire career. So if the song itself isn't exciting enough for you, it is the rarest of rare creatures in the McCartney beastery. And what is interesting, though, is how it is Denny Lane that takes the lead vocal on this one uh, for a total of three in this gig, which is very good, especially for this period. Again, the band focus is in full force. If you remember my comments earlier, you know that my feelings on Denny singing covers is more of a safe bet than him doing his own compositions. But my God, couldn't they have picked something with a little more bar key value with something a little cooler? Like, they've been working so hard on doing these rock and roll numbers, and now they're doing a hymn. Like, it's, it's an interesting twist, but this is actually a point in the show where they would have done another cover, um, a 1920s country music sound called Turkey in the Straw, and from other recordings that I've heard from across this tour, they actually did that one a lot better. It was, it was a little funkier, a little jivier, and probably appealed to the crowd more in that Blue Moon of Kentucky kind of way. Um, another cover that actually did it from this period is Cotton Fields by Lead Belly, but I can't actually find any recordings of that one. So if you can locate that audio, then give me a buzz at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or on Twitter at McCartneyPod so I can give that a listen and let you know my thoughts. The song itself uh, does not appeal to me at all, and the recording is quite bad. You just heard the clip there. It doesn't sound much like writing home about It's a hymn. It's got that gospel refrain. I'm sure the audience are meant to be clapping and singing along. But I don't hear uh, or feel the same kind of interaction that we just had from Wildlife. And I can't believe this number had to follow Wildlife, really. Um, It feels like they've they've kind of put a break on any sort of momentum that they could have had. Like, they, they should have just gone right into the next one, really. My love... For the next song, I really can't believe that Paul waited this long to put it in the show. Because it, it's going to be a big one. Maybe not now. He wouldn't have known it at the time. But we're about to discuss what would be Wing's next number one hit. And here we get to listen to him ironing out all the creases. This is My Love.
What's interesting about these early performances of My Love is that whilst for the most part this is the number that we will come to know and love, several elements of the track would not make it into the studio, most notably being the call and answer backing vocals from Linda and the iconic solo, which at that point had not yet even been conceived, let alone recorded, so it's a very different one um, from the one on the final record. That wouldn't happen until Henry whipped it out in the studio sessions later that year. So what we have in every gig of this tour, Groningen included, is a slightly different version, a slightly different birth of the My Love solo, and it's literally Henry trying to figure it out on stage. And to be allowed in, to, you know, to peer into the creative process of, of such a career-defining song is endlessly intriguing for me. Even though the song isn't completely finished, you can still tell that Macca knows that it's going to be that future hit. Just comparing it to all the other Red Rose material that is being played with here, this is leaps and bounds ahead of the curve. It's being performed with much more finesse. It's being performed to the quality of Eat at Home, Smile Away, and later maybe I'm Amazed. And, you know, this is coming from a guy who isn't even particularly fussed about this song at the best of times. You have to admit, though, it is pretty mad that a song as iconic as this for McCartney, you know, that is still played on radio to some extent to this day, it was actually played in my pub quite recently as, um, as well as part of their soundtrack, was at this time just another one of those prototype unreleased numbers along with all the other beta testing material here. As with many other tracks on this list, this gig is the best way for me to experience the song, though not to the same degree as tracks like Mumbo or I Am Your Singer, but for both bad and good reasons, I never thought I could love those songs any more than I did. So I can't complain if Paul McCartney hasn't completely redefined three whole songs from, from, from his career. I am grateful for what this gig has given me already. Again, it's going to be one of those occasions where I know that everyone else is going to like it more than me, you know, all of you are going to like it, so I'm not going to draw, you know, draw my blade, as it were. I, I don't want to die on that hill. All things considered, though, even nearly 50 years later, through headphones in my bedroom, the song is still undeniably strong, even if it is one of the soppiest things he ever wrote in this period. Mary had a little lamb. Not content with subjecting the crowd to old country standards, now Paul is going to gift us with a nursery rhyme. A nursery rhyme of such notorious reputation that, even without any background research, that you know that this will be the first and last... that you know very well that this will be the first and last tour it will ever appear on. This is Mary Had a Little Lamb. Don't want to spend too long on this one because it sucks and because the episode is far too long already but at risk of sounding like a broken record I shall attempt to be brief but yeah again this gig this tour has the best version of this song it's endemic of my experience seeing Paul live late last year 
you know, I actually got to see him work and see songs that I didn't particularly have a fondness to have a much greater effect in the live circuit. And now I know that there are just certain songs that you cannot appreciate until you hear them live working with a crowd. Uh, if you thought my opinions on this gig's performance of Mumbo had a shocking outcome, well, you ain't heard nothing yet, folks, because in all honesty, without you know, this trolling contrarianism that I may be known for, I kind of like this cutesy little performance here. And so does the crowd, with the la 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 refrain being sung by everyone in attendance. Like, I know this whole episode has been cases of songs going down far better live with a crowd better than in any, you know, McCartney publication would have led you to believe. But this one takes the biscuit. I mean, it's almost common law that you hate this song, but I'm here bopping my head along, being rather at ease with the fact that I would be goofily singing along with this bit of nonsense. Maybe it's because here, live in Groningen, that there is less of the baggage associated with this song being some sort of anti-matter, non-troversy protest tune. And without that heady stuff, shall we say, we can instead appreciate the lame McCartney weirdness that makes up this song. I'm not saying this performance is going to make me go out and try and reconcile with the single release. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just glad to have this particular gig in my back pocket for emergencies if I ever needed to listen to Mary Hand's Little Lamb. Maybe I'm amazed. Following on, and we're going to be discussing one of those real staples that's going to follow McCartney right the way up to the present day. This is the hit that never was, then kind of was. This is Maybe I'm Amazed. It was strange that Paul never released Maybe I'm Amazed as a single until the Wings Over America tour. Well, now you're going to have to consider the fact that Paul was actually dazzling crowds with this track as far back as 1972. It's not like he never played it until Wings Over America. He knew that people liked this song and it was working well with crowds. Like, I know he was resistant to, you know, maybe remaking it as a Wings song on a Wings album. But they easily could have ensured that they had a decent recording unit set up and released it as a live track as early as, say, something like 1972 or 73, which would have done wonders for the band's image and sales at the time. Like a couple of songs on this list, trying to describe this particular song in a new or meaningful way is a rather moot effort, but what I can say is that the consistent high-quality performances of this song certainly have started right away. Obviously, this is the only number that Paul was comfortable performing from the much-panned McCartney 1 album, and like Smile Away and Eat at Home, he will be damned if any of his solo material is going to come across poorly. Henry McCullough, of course, is the one that particularly steps up to the post with this great task, and he does it with poise and grace and just absolutely nails the classic solo. 
Like, this is the moment in particular to make Paul proud, and he does so note for note. With Paul not having yet penned the session-defining Live and Let Die, this is actually the only song from the setlist that I myself have also seen McCartney perform live. And even though this song may not have reached peak audience resonance, it's still quite clearly a classic here, as much as it was quite clearly a classic when I heard him perform it a few months ago. Also, for those of you who are maybe new to the show, it has been a bit of a running gag that I really do not like the way that McCartney continually chooses to play. Maybe I'm amazed in the live format. The album version has always been superior to me, and he'll never top it. But yeah. What further upsets me still about this particular performance is that McCartney chooses to shift to this rocky, melodramatic, over-the-top way of playing this song oh so early. Like, there was never a period where he played it exactly the way he does on the album, with that restraint, with the great burst at the end. Oh well, beggars can't be choosers. You know, he still nails it here. Of course he absolutely nails it. It's maybe I'm amazed. The crowd love it. He sees the crowd love it. And yet, it's not going to be commercially available for them as a single for at least another four years. Hi, hi, hi. On to our penultimate release here. And what we have is going to be the next song in Paul's string of oddly controversial quote-unquote hits. This is Hi, Hi, Hi. too sure if after the drugs bust in Gothenburg nine days prior that Paul would have been able to live up to the tenets of high 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 but I know that I would certainly have been feeling the apparent natural highs that the song is supposedly referencing and whilst Paul may not have been able to dabble in the vices of his life I would not have put it past the audience. One of the ideas that we, or should I say not I, have been indulging in this episode has been how Wings has been reworking material from the studio album Wildlife and giving it new life on stage with a bit more polish. Well, here with High High High, as with My Love earlier, the opposite is true as we get to see a song or songs that are being played live on the stage first that will then later go on to actually be revisited in the studio at a later date. In fact, Hi 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 and the B-Side Sea Moon would be on shelves December 1st later that year, only 104 days from now. So it really would not be too long before audiences would actually get to hear this song again, unlike the majority of the rest of the fucking gig. Though this version here in Groningen isn't as finely tuned a version of Hi Hi Hi, and it's still recognisably Hi Hi Hi, but not instantly so. You know, it's still heavy, it's still got that brilliant throbbing bass to it, and it's got a great guitar sound, but McCartney clearly hasn't worked out all of the kinks in the design yet, 
which means the song doesn't quite deliver the same punch as on the single, or even on Wings Over America. And whilst the bare bones of the song are rather set in stone, the noticeable difference is the length. The High 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 that we all know and love only clocks in at just over three minutes, and this one here is pushing five. The most immediate reason for this is that the, the, the song is somewhere in the region of like five to ten percent slower than the original, which uh, it, may, it, it makes it a bit more of a, a sludge, a bit more of a lollop, you know, it, it doesn't have as much electricity and bop to it, like you, you can't really feel people shuffling to this one as much, Paul, just take it away and do it faster. There's also a much less aggressive, lengthier build-up at the start, which it lacks the kind of fun immediacy of the single version. There are several solos dotted throughout the song, possibly both from Lenny and Henry, but it's kind of hard to tell. And then on top of that, we also have several repetitions of the middle eight and the chorus. And all of this together, you know, whilst being a mostly enjoyable experience for me at least, it becomes all too distracting in the end, and I struggle to get in the zone. The song is clearly unfinished, it is too long, it needs a healthy trim, and unlike My Love, the core songwriting isn't strong enough to cover up these cracks. However, there is one thing that does suspiciously stay the same between this particular recording and the single, and it's such a shame that we we don't have the, specifically the Groningen audio here. Because whilst the audio for Maybe I'm Amazed and Long Tall Sally that you're about to hear are actually from the Groningen gig, but had to be remastered from the McCartney archive session for me to actually get access to them. This one here, like Best Friend, is actually taken from another gig. This audio is from The Hague performance. But if we did have that Groningen audio, it would be a great comparative piece of evidence to see if Paul sings the same lyrics, because what is quite clear from this performance is, is that Paul does sing, he wants to give you his body gun which pretty much ends the whole theory on was it Bodygun, was it Polygon? You know, this is a raunchy as a Paul McCartney song as you're ever going to get. And considering that the next line is much worse, you know, being, and like a rabbit, I'm going to grab it and do it till the night is done, as well as the rest of the song in general, it seems retrospectively odd that Polygon was the supposed line of contention. And why would Paul throw away a song of controversy to have this one particular line that wasn't controversial? I mean, I know he did Fur You, which is meant to be like Fuck You as well, later on in his career, but I don't think it's the same thing. I think that was more backtracking. But yeah, overall, high, high, high here. It's a great piece to see the song transition from its early roots into the final thing, but ultimately the final thing is what's going to bring you back. You know, this is a great work in progress, but I will wait till the work is complete. Long Tall Sally... And finally, to cap things off, we have one last trip to the past before we have to grab our coats and make our way to the signposted exits. Of course, there was no other way to end it for Paul. It's Long Tall Sally.
We may have no encore here in Groningen, but Paul certainly knows how to end things with a big rock and roll standard explosion to get everyone's feet moving. Only this time it isn't any old standard like the Blue Moon of Kentucky or Will the Circuit Be Unbroken. This is a song that has a direct history and link with Paul and with the audience. Whilst Lennon acquiesced to some degree and did in fact play a couple of Beatles songs, most notably his roaring rendition of Come Together in August of the same year, Macca, being the guy who quote-unquote broke up the Beatles and being the only Beatle to lack a big post-breakup hit, was understandably reticent in playing any Beatle material whatsoever. Although, through playing Long Tall Sally, a song penned by Little Richard, and a song that the Beatles covered on the Long Tall Sally EP, sung by Paul, Paul was able to circumvent his own self-imposed artistic limitations and give the public kind of half of what they wanted. Like, Paul is performing a Beatles song, but it's not really a Beatles song, so he gets to save face. Paul and the band do a suitably tight rendition of this one, you know Paul had them practicing this one, whether there was going to be a, you know, a tour or not. This is the type of music that Paul likes. And that kind of enthusiasm always comes out, not only in McCartney's joyfully powerful rock and roll vocal, but in the sense that, you know, clearly the whole band loved this one. The audience loved this one. And that same sentimental wink and nod, rose-tinted Beatles look to the, to the audience is, you know going to be something that Paul is going to increasingly experiment with throughout his career until he's going to do whole albums of Wink and Nod Beatles pastiches like Tug of War, like Egypt Station. So again, it, it is interesting to see Long Tall Sally at such an early period. We did have Lucille on the last tour, and the Beatles did play Lucille in their early days in the clubs, but it was never a, a part of their discography. So this is the start, essentially, of Paul coming out of the Beatles' closet after the breakup. And I know my reviews that get towards the end of these episodes are notoriously shorter than they are at the start, but what more can I say about this one as well? This is Paul McCartney doing Long Tall Sally. Little Richard said Paul McCartney sings Long Tall Sally better than he does. So what more can I say? So yeah, that is it. That is my ultimate song-by-song review of the Wings in Groningen show. Overall thoughts... Honestly, I am now torn as to what tour I would like to go back in time to and see because I've got so much affection for the Wings 1979 tour now and the amazing songs on that set list. Obviously, Wings Over America is the tour to end all tours, but this one in, in particular it is such a rich and fertile garden of strange songs and unique compositions. And the fact that they went back and retooled so many wing songs and the fact that they were showcasing so many future projects simply fascinates me to no end. This tour is such an interesting period in the band's history. And to hear them go from that awfully, ridiculously shambolic tour the previous year to this is a definite step in the right direction. It isn't Wings Over America, no, but at least they've pulled their finger out this time around. Some of my particular favourites from this gig would be definitely Mumbo. Ah, oh, I can't believe Mumbo was done so well this time around. Obviously Wildlife, it could be the best performance of Wildlife in history. It is such a powerful moment in this gig and in all of Paul McCartney's live performance. Like This is one of my favourite moments of any Paul McCartney live gig. I absolutely love the version of Wildlife in this gig. 
And on top of that, how could I forget the fact that there are two RAM tracks to open up this gig? I could not imagine a situation where I'm sitting there with my popcorn, with my two litre beers, and wow, Paul opens with two tracks from objectively the best album he's ever done. This gig in Groningen is so unique for so many reasons, and after doing a general discussion of the Wings Over Europe tour, the fact that this show had so many cool cold cuts and and strangely magical moments i had to bring it to your attention i had to discuss it you know it was the only show from this tour that i really could talk about with any passion i'm so glad it was recorded i wish i wish i could have been there but sera sera but i'm glad i had this podcast to talk about it because for me it is a show that with pinpoint precision appeals to what I want or wanted from Wings. We've had loads of wildlife content, we've had loads of Red Rose Speedway content, and yet somehow the gig hasn't been an entire disaster. You know, this gig is a signpost that the early Wings era was not as horrendously bad as everyone makes it out to be. You know, I hope with this episode you've have been, well, A, been inspired to go and check out the gig itself and go check out all the other material surrounding the Wings over Europe phase. But maybe the next time you talk about Wings between 1972 to 73, maybe you'll be a little kinder. Maybe you'll be a little more lenient. Who knows? I love wildlife. I've certainly got a dark secret soft spot for Red Rose Speedway. And I certainly hope you have too. Obviously, let me know what you thought of this gig. Maybe you thought that the set list should have been slightly different. Maybe there are other songs from from this period you would have liked to have heard. Maybe you agree or disagree with my individual reviews of the songs there. Or even if you want to just say hi, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at McCartneyPod. You can also find us on YouTube and on Facebook simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Of course, if you want to help keep the lights running, if you want to help support the show, if you'd ever like to buy me a beer or a coffee to say thank you for this strangely unique content that you produce, check out our Patreon. The link's below. You can help support the show that way. Thank you very much, folks. I'm sure Deddy Lane has been playing us out already. This episode has taken far too long to make, but... As with all Paul McCartney content, these things always spiral madly out of control. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Pipes of Peace Part 1, aka the backstory and all that, is up next. So look forward to that. It's going to be a big one. And then, of course, we have Part 2, my album review with a special mystery guest. Look forward to that as well, folks. Keep listening to Paul. Peace and love, peace and love. Thank you very much, Denny. Bye-bye.